0: If you had the money, you had access to a rapid helicopter evacuation to Kathmandu here, where there were very good hospitals and very good medical care. So it was a bit of a strange in-between land in that that care is potentially available. um, It's just accessing it can be difficult, which can increase that moral dilemma a bit if the only barrier for someone is potentially who they are, where they were born and how much money they have to get down.
1: Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm your host for today, Dr. Fionn Davis, Emergency Medicine and Expedition Doctor. So to follow on from our previous Everest podcast with Dr. Ben Alba, we've got a fascinating chat with two previous Himalayan doctors, um, Matt and Priya. So welcome to the podcast um, and we look forward to hearing about some of your interesting cases whilst you are out in the Himalayas. Thanks, for having me. Cool. Um, so a little bit about them. Um, so after finishing foundation year training and a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene, they gained some experience in remote and low resource medicine in East Timor and Zambia, as well as a stint in Darwin. They then spent three months in the Everest region of the Himalayas providing medical care at 4,300 metres. Pretty breathless, I imagine. Uh, Matt's now an emergency medicine trainee, whilst Priya is training in community, sexual and reproductive health. So thank you so much for joining us and we're very excited to hear about your experiences um, out in remote areas of the world.
0: Yeah, it's exciting to be honest to have a chance to talk about them.
1: Great. Um, so do you want to first start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into kind of remote and low resource medicine and how, what got you interested in that?
2: yeah sure so um it's probably something most medical students say but it's sort of something that's always interested us we've always um done a lot of traveling in the first year of med school we uh, spent three months in east africa so we spent a lot of time in uh, low resource countries in general and we knew at some point um after foundation years that that's what we wanted to do and that's where we wanted to go and um, we spent our elective um in zambia doing. Um, almost three months of uh, work in a in a, a sort of government-run hospital there so while all our friends were off uh on a beach in a caribbean we felt like we were actually being worked hard um but we did enjoy it and that was one of the places we went back to after foundation years and um we just got we found the other um, opportunities like east timor and darwin through the diploma of tropical medicine Um and through doing that, we I sort of always knew about the Himalayan Rescue Association just through Googling, basically, as a, as a medical student dreaming, um, and then we just went for it and applied for it. So even though we didn't have much altitude or mountain experience, we definitely had that sort of low resource uh, background, um, and we were, yeah, fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to work there.
1: Amazing yeah and um, I've heard of the Himalayan Rescue Association as well and um, they're a great organisation to work with from what I hear. So how long were you out in the Everest region for?
0: So we spent three months out in Nepal um, we got a week in Kathmandu, we were very well looked after by the Himalaya, Himalayan Rescue Association (HRA) um, before we flew out to Lukla. And um, we trekked up to Farachay, which is the uh, little settlement that we were based at. And we spent almost three months up there, which was the duration of the spring trekking season. Um, I so bet when it we was were... busy. It did. Um, when we arrived there, it was freezing cold. And we were essentially providing medical care to the Nepalese who were setting up for the trekking and climbing season. And um, so it was actually not that busy. But as we got into the mid trekking season, um, things really, really did pick up.
1: And am I right in thinking that the HRA have got clinics in Ferreche and in Everest Base Camp as well? Have they got any other ones?
2: Yeah, so they've got three clinics. One's at Ferreche, which is um, 4,300 metres above sea level, and it's sort of the stop below Base Camp. Then they've got at Everest Base Camp themselves, and they've got another one in um, the Annapurna region, uh, a base camp called Manag, um, which is separate to the Everest Base Camp region. But yeah, three main, three main base camps.
1: And what was the sort of setup for you guys? Were you sort of sleeping in the clinic and were you involved in setting up the clinic for the season or how, how did you kind of start your, your journey off up there?
0: So it's a really well set up um, clinic. It's one building with two clinic rooms in, each um, with a couple of examination beds. Um, there are a few bedrooms attached to that building, um, so where we stayed. And while we were there, we were with an American emergency physician um, who we were very lucky to end up there with, called Brian, um, who worked alongside us. um, And two uh, Nepalese uh, people who we worked with, um, who one was essentially a fixer who knew everything about the region, um, knew more altitude medicine than I think I'm ever going to learn or forget, despite his lack of a medical school education. Um, and could sort out any problem up there. Um, and the other one was just a wonderful cook. who used to cook for the US Army, but had relocated and cooked for us instead.
1: Wow, okay.
0: Um, the building was very well set up um, in that it was, had solar panels um, and a really good battery system, so we had quite reliable power um, and that enabled us to run a couple of oxygen uh, concentrators. So, throughout the season, we had um, oxygen concentrators um, on demand and we didn't run out of power once. So, we had a really good setup up there.
1: Yeah. So, what sort of equipment, medicines, um, sort of medical kit did you have access to? You mentioned the oxygen concentrators.
0: So, we had a basic pharmacy, um, we had a supply of common antibiotics. Um, we had the altitude essentials, so things like naphazoline, dexamethasone, um, a variety of ailments for crops and colds, um, which we handed out like sweeties quite often, and, and, and some stuff for minor trauma, so local anaesthetic, sutures, and um, things to clean wounds with. So it was a basic pharmacy, but I don't think we ever needed anything that wasn't there.
2: We. We also had, um, courtesy of the American doctor who joined us, an ultrasound scan, so a portable ultrasound scan that he brought along um, that isn't part of a clinic, but we were fortunate, fortunate enough to have that. Um, and it sort of just aided some of our, um, you know, differential diagnoses and things like that. And he was quite skilled at ultrasound scan, So that was very useful, but that's not a typical um, part, of the, part of the clinic.
1: Yeah definitely I imagine that most of your diagnosis is based on kind of clinical examination and you don't really have access to I don't I wouldn't think x-ray or anything like that I think do they maybe have one at Everest Base Camp now I've heard.
2: No that well not, them, not when we were there. there yeah
0: There's x-ray facilities uh, a couple of thousand meters lower just above Namche Bazaar and but it's a long distance to get to so it was quite refreshing and that everything was back to clinical medicine which
1: yeah, yeah, I, I quite like that element of expedition as well. Um, and then, just to set the scene a little bit more, what uh, what were your sort of evacuation options um, for getting a patient to a, a major hospital?
0: So there were three really. One was that the patient walked down, um, which in some cases was appropriate. The second was that they were put on either a donkey or a yak, um, and were walked down. Those two would get you down to, there was a little hospital above Nandchi Bazaar, um, which had basic bloods, basic x-ray and a few more treatments than us. If we wanted someone to a major hospital and to be out of the high altitude area, um, it was helicopter evacuation down to Kathmandu, um, which generally worked very well, um, unless it was the evening or night time or windy or snowy or raining. in good times you could get people down quickly uh, but clearly that was quite often when we were stuck to patients.
1: Yeah and people never seem to get ill when the weather is good (laughs) in the middle of the night when the weather's bad (laughs) Um, and just how long would it take somebody to maybe get down to that Namche clinic that you mentioned?
0: You could get there in a day on a donkey or a yak, Um, it was reasonably a couple of days walk
1: Okay. All right, all right. yeah. So you, are sort of a couple of days walk out from a li- sort of more more, more well equipped clinic, and then um, at least uh, you know sort of few more days than that um, to a sort of bigger hospital, and then a hospital um, a helicopter even evacuation, possibly if you had the weather, but not always. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so what was your sort of day-to-day routine? What was your common things that you were seeing and, and what was the, the most prevalent stuff that you were seeing on your three months up there?
2: So in terms of day-to-day routine, we worked on a three-person rotor. So someone would be on as the day doctor, someone would be on overnight, um, and someone would have a sort of rest day as such or to do some trekking. And um, if you were the day doctor, you'd sort of, um, be ready for clinic at around 7, 8 a.m and um, and just welcome whatever comes in and um, that could that was really variable but the majority of things from climbers and trekkers were the common cold and um, particularly people worrying that this was the start of something like um hape and that they knew about but often it was just um the, com- the common cold or viral illnesses and um, we saw a good dose of um cerebral edema or pulmonary edema, so a haste and hape as well um, and a lot of just early um, symptoms of acute mountain sickness. So, you know, not quite at HAPE or yet, but it definitely could get there if they didn't sort of prevent it. Um, so that was sort of our bread and butter. Um, just like any GP or any surgery, you just saw some other random things as well that you didn't expect. Um, and the afternoons, we always held an educational talk um, in our little sort of glass conservatory thing, which was the warmest place. That we had in the clinic, um, and that was welcome to everyone. So often um would bring their their, t- their team or their uh, people they were guiding up. And and that was just to provide a little bit of um basic education information about the signs of acute mountain sickness, how to prevent it, and what to do if they came across it.
1: Great, okay. Um and what were some of the kind of more standout or kind of interesting cases that you had whilst you were up there?
0: So the haste and hate we kind of expected to see um, and there were some interesting cases but the things that we didn't expect I think really stand out. So we had one unfortunate Nepalese man um, who worked as a yak herder. He came in one evening, a bit of blood on his trousers, and when we managed to get history through a translator, it turned out he'd been bending over to pick some yak dung up in the corner of his field and one of his yaks had snuck up behind him and managed to gore him in the buttock. And once once he told us about this, we were quite interested to see the damage. Um, So when we examined him, he had a wound uh, just adjacent to his rectum. It just spared the muscle around his rectum and going fairly deep into his buttock. Um, And needless to say, none of us had ever seen anything at all like this before. Um, and we were quite reluctant to do anything to it. However, having a chat with him, going to see the nearest surgeon, which realistically was probably going to be a helicopter trip to Kathmandu, um, was simply not an option for him kind of economically and tied away from his family. Um, so he was very keen that we did the best we could there. So we pretended to be surgeons for the evening. Um, our colleague Brian was on call, so led on this, which I think he was very glad to have the chance to do. Um, but we managed to put some local in, have a good explore. Unfortunately, the wound kind of ended in soft tissue in the buttock. Um, it didn't go into the rectum, or kind of being a canal at all. Um, and so after an extremely thorough wash, um, we succeeded in closing it in layers um, and then putting a rudimentary dressing on we waved him goodbye after this he was quite keen to say goodbye to us um but we got some feedback towards the end of the season that actually nothing had become infected um and he was living life normally um so the effect the repair seemed to have had good effect it was as i say one of those things that we really hadn't planned on having to do when we walked up the Everest space Camp track but definitely the thing that stands out the most
1: and so you're, you're an emergency medicine trainee now, aren't you? So, um, and, and in deep dark Wales. So I guess you do see a little bit of sort of rural trauma and things like that, but I'm, I'm guessing ne- never anything like this. And um, Normally, I'm guessing that would have gone to theatre, no question.
0: Oh, as an emergency medicine doctor in the UK, you're definitely not touching this. It's a very quick phone call to the surgeons. Um, having worked across kind of Timor, Zambia, Northern Australia, where you do see some interesting things. We've seen some things like this, but there had always been someone else slightly more qualified than us to repair it.
1: <laughs> and it sounds like this American physician, Brian, was, was very helpful. Shout out to Brian if he's listening. He uh, yeah. was very helpful in, uh, in, in helping close the wound as well. Yeah, he was invaluable.
0: He was. He was enthusiastic as we were.
1: Yeah, I think once you realise that, you know, you've, you, he's not going anywhere, you've actually got to fix this yourselves. Once you've committed to that decision, it's, uh, yeah, it's probably quite exciting once you're sort of thinking through what are the options here? How am I going to close this? Um, I guess, so infection was probably be a big concern for you and keeping the wound kind of sterile and, and clean and give, giving it a good washout. Um, what, how do you sort of, how do you maintain it as aseptically as possible in like a clinic and I'm imagining on a kind of Kind of wooden bed and there's kind of dust everywhere and there's people coming in and out and you know how how did you try and keep it clean or or get it clean
0: so keeping it clean while we tried to explore it and then close it um was relatively simple we had a room that we could keep closed and we had a good supply of clean water um, and we had basic dressing packs so giving it a good wash in the clinic um wasn't too difficult we sent him home with a long course of antibiotic, but the real concern for us was there was no really good way of providing dressing that was going to stay in place. And mm. um, follow up, we suggested he came back to see us and he kind of nodded, but it was fairly clear we were unlikely to see him again soon. And then clearly there's no way of keeping that area clean, particularly if you're someone who has to walk probably 10 to 12 hours every day, oh, and your yeah. dressing is going to rub off, you're going to be very sweaty. Well, otherwise you're sitting on top of a yak, which itself isn't a clean place and it's going to provide plenty of local trauma to the wound. So I think it's partly a long course of antibiotics and partly just plain luck that he didn't reappear um, with an infected wound site to us.
1: Wow. And, and I guess he was very lucky that it didn't tear his rectum or anything like that either. That would, would have been really quite difficult. He is
0: incredibly lucky because, yeah, repairing soft tissue is one thing. I think we would have insisted on him going to see someone with some more expertise if he'd gone through the rack.
1: And um, roughly when you explored it, how deep was it?
0: It was probably, say, three to four centimetres.
1: Yeah, because yeah, Yakhauts are sort of pretty chunky, aren't yeah. Yeah.
0: they? They are. They're very it. wide. Yeah, they're wide rather than long and thin, which was probably very fortunate for him and that some of this was blunt trauma rather than a deeper penetrating trauma.
1: Yeah. And then, um, so I guess your, your, your main considerations were this guy's probably, well, he can't afford to go to Kathmandu, which is probably what you might've done otherwise. He's probably not going to come back for follow-up. Um, it's going to be really hard to keep clean. It's gonna be really hard to keep dressing on it. Um, and so, so yeah, what, how did that kind of modify your treatments or things that you did compared to what you might've done? if he was in a hospital in Wales somewhere?
0: <laughs> so we gave him a prolonged course of antibiotics. We had a long talk with him about what to try and do. I think when you're in that environment, you sometimes just have to accept you don't have that control that you would like to have. You certainly don't have the level of control that you have um, in a UK-based hospital. So we had to accept there was a significant risk of wound infection. If he developed one, he would come back to us. We would manage it as best we can. Um, but the control you can have in the UK, I think you just can't replicate environments like that. And letting go of that control can be one of the challenges that we found from working there.
2: Yeah, and we've seen that with a lot of our with well, other cases. So sometimes you you just have to accept you can only do what you can do, and you only have what you have there. Um, and as frustrating and as upsetting that as that can be, you you know, you you have to come to terms with that. So you know, it would be great to. Yeah, send them to Kathmandu, or do a really good exploration, or. But you, you have to go with what the patient wants and what you can provide, really. So. um, Yeah, mental battle accepting that.
1: It's one of the really challenging Um, things about expedition medicine for some medics. I think, especially if it's like one of your first trips. Um, is is balancing that like kind of gold standard, what you would want to happen or what you know should happen, versus what you can actually provide and deliver, can be really challenging and a bit of a moral dilemma sometimes. Um,
0: it is, and I think in our previous work in Zambia and East Timor, often there was very little that could be done, um, and you kind of had to accept that sometimes. And patients who shouldn't die did die. Um, it was a slightly different environment because. If you had the money, you had access to a rapid helicopter evacuation to Kathmandu here, where there were very good hospitals and very good medical care. So it was a bit of a strange in-between land in that that care is potentially available. um, It's just accessing it can be difficult, which can increase that moral dilemma a bit if the only barrier for someone is potentially who they are, where they were born and how much money they have to get down
1: yeah quite challenging and and difficult to accept sometimes that massive disparity in care isn't it do you find that when you've come back to the the uk or or sort of more westernized healthcare um do you think that your experiences in low resources areas have kind of added to your practice back home and what what do you think's kind of changed about it
2: yeah definitely i think i think that all the experiences we had are invaluable especially because we trust our clinical judgment a lot more Um, we, you know, we didn't have access to even blood imaging in a lot of the places we worked and um, and now we see those things as an adjunct rather than part of the diagnosis you know you, you use your history you use your examination first and and and, and then you, you do these investigations as, as adjuncts adjunct, which is which is the way it should be and the way you sort of taught at medical school but not quite how it goes sometimes as, as i'm sure you know uh, and that so that that part of it is invaluable. It also just puts things into perspective, um, about how lucky we are, about everything we have, um, about what a real emergency is and isn't. You know what, how to prioritize, and it's things you sort of learn learn as a foundation doctor, and then it sort of consolidated it and took to a whole new level, really, once you once you work in low resource settings, and. Um, so, it yeah. really
1: makes you grateful for what we have actually i think when you you come back and everybody's sort of like oh the nhs is in such dire straits things are so bad etc and it's like well we do have paracetamol um it's <laughs> and you know that's more than some places isn't it so
2: yeah and it's, you know it's very difficult to compare because obviously we should be aiming for we should be aiming for the gold standard and we should be aiming for the best here in the next but yeah it's, it's it does put things into perspective when you think about what you saw and what you did and what you were forced to do and um, in some of these situations and just having more support in the uk is, is quite nice
1: a lot of the questions that we got are uh, we get asked on the um world extreme medicine courses are around um well if there's something that i wouldn't normally do at home um you know like a like a kind of more surgical kind of exploration enclosure you know, um, where does the the legal responsibility or or trying to phrase it well, but if it's something that's not in your normal scope of practice, uh, but then you're probably the best option that patient's got at the time. And otherwise, he's probably not going to have any in medical care if you don't help. So how, how, what sort of considerations do you take into account in terms of, um, like, I guess, competency, scope of practice and, and what's best for the patient at the time?
2: Yeah I think that and that's a really difficult one because we're put in that situation constantly I, I felt like and it depends on lots of different things it depends on your first of all your indemnity so if, if you are insured out there and if you're insured by um, a western practice like p s m u then that, that really does depend on what you're what you're competent to do but in a lot of these places you, you aren't insured and you're, you're protected by the people who are employing you there in which case you do what feels right for you and and you you take your patient into account so for example the um the yak herder he wasn't going to go down so you're not going to leave that wound empty because actually that's uh, empty sorry open you're not going to leave that um, wound open because that's worse for him so it's just about weighing up risks, risks and benefits and i think especially now as junior doctors you're trained to work within your limitations and ask for help which is absolutely correct in the western um in western society but he when you're in these low resource settings doesn't quite apply
1: it can be a bit of a gray area sometimes can't it because just because you're in a low low resource setting doesn't sort of give you um carte blanche to go sort of opening abdomens and things like that if you're not if you're not normally um if you're not normally doing that but it you are sometimes the best option that the patient's got um so sometimes it can be a little bit tricky can't it, to make those decisions but Sounds like you did a great job for this guy and that he he had a really good outcome as well, which um, he might not have uh, if he hadn't come and seen you.
0: It can. And there's a lot of nuance to it as well, because there was also some difference between treating Nepalese patients who would have had nothing if we weren't there and potentially treating Western trackers who would be much more aware of if you made any mistakes, that there was kind of options in terms of legal redress from that. Um, and who would have access to going back to Kathmandu to see a specialist. So I think it's very much, you approach the patient in front of you in terms of what's best for them and bearing in mind what is best for you. Because if a trekker had had that happen to them, definitely wouldn't have touched them. And um, they very much suggested there was no choice but to go down to Kathmandu. Yeah, so,
1: a tailored approach. Is-
0: exactly, yeah. a great deal of common sense um, in terms of being aware of who the patient is.
2: Which, uh, which again, sorry, ethically doesn't feel right, almost, but we get, we gave the the the, the option to go down, and he, he didn't want to, so yeah, you, you take each patient individually.
1: And I think that's actually another really um, cool thing about expedition medicine is that ability to integrate that patient's um, job yak herder he's on he's on his bum all day on yaks or or walking around all day um his resources his setting his context and with his medical condition and then to take all of that into account and to be sort of properly immersed in it like you're living it every day you really understand um what the patient might have to do or is going through um which is completely unlike our normal context back in the uk where some you know social history consists of how how, do you smoke do you drink what do you do for a living who lives with you (laughs) which is we don't really have the same sort of understanding i think as when you're um totally immersed in that cultural context at the time
0: No, and we're very lucky in that our um our nepalese um I called him our fixer at the start, but our expert on everything altitude medicine knew everyone in the mountains and he could answer almost all these questions for us. He knew who was going to be able to go down for more care, who simply wasn't going to, and that wasn't an option. So we took a great deal of lead from him on everything social, so quite a lot of medical. So we were very fortunate to be in that position where we had a guide to local customs and culture.
1: Have you had that kind of person in other contexts as well, like in uh, Zambia or Timor? Yeah,
2: we were quite lucky. We always worked. We were never lone lone workers. We always worked with local people, uh, which makes it so much easier. So much easier. And whether that's even if it's just a translator, they will know the culture a million times more than you do. And um, and yeah, it's it's invaluable, really. So it's
0: usually a good thing. In Zambia Priya got into some arguments about what was ethically appropriate for end-of-life <laughs> care so it doesn't always make it easier no. um, but it's definitely I think you have to have that insight into local culture otherwise you're going to cause more problems than you do good.
1: Yeah it's definitely worth knowing that as a medic going to these places that you cannot just transplant western medicine into low resource settings it's, it just doesn't work um, and it, yes often not the best thing for the patients either. Um, and I know as we were just sort of building up to the podcast you just mentioned a couple of other interesting cases which were things that I thought would not have occurred at altitude wouldn't have been a problem but do you maybe just want to talk a little bit about those as well
2: yeah sure so one of the other memorable patients was a young a young boy in late teens who came in actually with what seemed like a razor vagal syncope and it hit his head um but actually when he came in he was covered in blood and a better history taking just showed, um told us that he had been vomiting blood uh, all day and for the past few days, so he had hematemesis. It sounded like fresh, fresh blood. And um basically after you know history and examination, we suspected that he had a peptic ulcer or perforated peptic ulcer. But obviously as these things always happen, this was at like ten o'clock at night that he he walked up to us. Um he was clinically stable, but he was in a lot of pain, and obviously, um, he was quite pale as well. So, we suspected he was quite anemic. He didn't really have any risk factors, he was a completely fit and healthy young boy. I think maybe he'd taken some um, monsteroidals at some point for some vague symptoms. Uh, and so, yeah, so we just kept him there overnight and fed um, him lots of uh, PPIs, which we had, and fluids uh monitored him and eventually he went down for um an evacuation uh, that was a scary point and there was actually a very other similar patient who came in again at night who was 30 uh, no no risk factors again and he was very similar but he actually went from being reasonably stable and we kept monitoring him overnight to suddenly having a protein abdomen overnight when he perforated um, so that was slightly terrifying for us and obviously we, again we only had what we had so we could only keep pumping fluids keep giving morphine keep giving ppis um, and amazingly we managed to walk into the helicopter in the morning uh, mm. waving goodbye and we got feedback from both of them uh, both of them in Kathmandu that yeah they did have perforated um peptic ulcers
1: wow um did, did ultrasound play a role in those cases at all or was it not helpful
0: so Brian our colleague had a look um, and he thought uh, with the 30-year-old who turned out to have a perforated duodenal giord- ulcer um, that he might be able to see some signs um, but nothing convincing um, again it was going clinically he walked in with significant abdominal pain um, but stable and about 3am because I remember when I went to see him um, he was in significantly more pain and his abdomen had gone rigid and um, so clinically he seemed to have perforated um, we used our entire stock of IV morphine up on that one patient that night to keep him comfortable. Um, so that with some antibiotics and some fluids. We were incredibly relieved when he left in the morning.
1: And he, did you guys get restocked at all or how did, how did that work?
0: No, fortunately, I think it was towards the end. Um, and I don't think we got any more IV morphine. Um, but other drugs, if we'd run out, um, helicopters came up from Katmandu often enough. Um, we could have restocked essential things if we ran out
1: okay and then um in terms of the prolonged kind of field care situation that you guys were in with those two patients where you're you're looking after them overnight for several hours um and i think i don't think you mentioned you didn't have a nurse did you with you so i guess you're filling that role as well that would kind of normally be done
2: sort of but the the nepalese gentleman keep talking about that he sort of played played a role as a nurse, basically. Oh, he was great. Yeah, so he would always be there.
1: Yeah, I want one of those guys. He's <laughs> yeah, he's, great. He's, he's the man for everything. <laughs> but um how did you guys sort of work uh, you know, who's gonna stay awake, who's gonna check on him, who's gonna, you know, hang the next bag of fluids and all of that stuff over there. Yeah,
2: that? so it's just about communication really. So I think I can't remember it was one of our on calls, um and we just we just rotated. So, you know, we just said you you get up next or often in that in that sort of case continuity is be better obviously because if you felt that you know and you keep feeling it um, we would do that but uh, yeah we just communicated and decided between us who would get up and who would do everything so um, luckily we obviously the two of us got along but um, we got on really well with our other colleague as well Um so it really wasn't wasn't difficult to sort these sort of things out
1: yeah wow you just don't think that you would see that at altitude two people fairly young with basically no risk factors with peptic ulcers and duodenal ulcers that's really interesting did you guys have any theories on why that might have happened or a lot of the time
0: but since we got back i had a bit of did a bit of research and um, and there have been some case series written up um, particularly in groups of people working at high altitude um and the, kind of, the pathophysiology isn't particularly well understood yet, but there is definitely an increased incidence of gastric ulcer formation um, at high altitudes. Um, and I think it's to do with kind of decreased, um, decreased mucosal protection um, at that altitude.
1: And I guess and a lot of
0: people are wide. taking
1: NSAIDs as well. Yes,
0: and in the, yeah, in the recreational kind of altitude, I think pretty much everyone is taking ibuprofen. And so I think that probably contributes a large amount.
1: Yeah. And that's something that I hadn't considered before, but that's really interesting to hear about. Um, so I guess as we just kind of bring it to a close, what were your major learning points from your experiences uh, in low resource settings? I'm, I'm thinking of the Himalayas, but also in your other experiences as well. What do you think that you've, your major learning points were from that?
0: So I think we plan very well for high altitude pathology um we knew the guideline backwards for haste and hate we knew exactly what to do with ams um, it was the the other bits that were a challenge um, so i think it's good to prepare um, it's good to prepare for common things to make sure that you don't struggle with them always be aware that there's going to be something else that will trip you up that you didn't expect um, and that when you're working these settings you just need to be quite flexible and be able to adapt kind of do the best you can except it's not going to be the same case right elsewhere but you can still provide excellent
2: care and you just have to be a bit more inventive and a bit more flexible yeah I and i think um it, yeah working in low resource settings can throw up all sort of ethical dilemmas and particularly when we've been trained in ethics so thoroughly as um, from from medicine life uh, it can be quite difficult but i think sometimes actually to make it more simple. You just gotta put the patient in front of you and it's as simple as what's gonna be best for this patient despite what I think and despite what I'm worried about and sort of go from there really and again, do do what you can.
1: Yeah, and I think those are great learning points and something to take away for for our listeners to think about maybe the next time they're out and about doing the best you can with what you have in front of you, taking the patient into account and sort of innovative thinking and thinking a little bit outside the box As well i think to see what you can do to give that patient excellent care with what you've got well thank you so much guys this was a really interesting conversation and thanks for sharing your one of your really interesting cases um and and all your your other cases as well um really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us on the podcast
2: you're welcome Thanks. thanks again for having us my pleasure thank you for having us
0: thanks for listening to the episode please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical
2: and performance medicine. Thanks again.